Welcome to Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups, a podcast where I, Michael Kazanovich, tell, well, bedtime stories adapted for grown-ups. You can consider me a spiritual entertainer, if you will. I tell stories of the discoveries I made after falling down a particularly wonderful rabbit hole. The stories that I tell are true to the best of my knowledge. They do play out in our reality, but they originate in places I discovered after I rejected all the blue pills I kept being handed. These stories can be true for you too, if you just allow them to be. Just check your knowledge at the door and use your heart to listen to the space in between the words. And if you feel something resonate, it may well be your white rabbit moving around in the bushes, making itself known. I dare you to follow it. And if something provokes you in any way or feels outrageously untrue, remember, these are mere stories told by someone who went completely out of his mind. Hello again, friend. Did you find the answer to the question I gave you? What do you really believe? I did, but it took time and a detour over transhumanism and the singularity before I arrived at now. Transhumanism is a life philosophy of sorts that mankind should use technology to enhance human minds and bodies. One of the biggest goals is eliminate aging as a cause of death. I was such a devout follower, so convinced that it would happen soon that I stopped saving for retirement. What's the point if the system would collapse under all the centenarians who just kept on living past their statistically calculated deaths? Mind you, I still believe that humans will one day, perhaps soon, slow aging so that we can live seemingly forever. However, unless they also find a way to reverse time, we'll all die eventually anyway, in the heat death of the universe. But that thought that we could get eternal life through science became my patronus against the Dementor that is fear of death. It didn't just leave the area, it fled to another country. I think I was buying myself time to answer that question, what do I really believe? I knew the answer to it was the only thing that could slay my fear of non-existence. Time is valuable, we all know it. Even the most corrupt person knows that time is money, and the most kind person gives the gift of time. We have devalued that gift. The internet, the one machine, as Kevin Kelly called it in his TED talk, this machine that we see so much promise in, has left our office desks and home PCs and started to meld with our bodies as our devices first became portable and then wearable. Internet is in everyone's smartphone, and everyone's phone is in their hand, ready to serve up entertainment, information, even wisdom, and distraction from the mundane. Back when access to the internet was restricted to physical rooms equipped with a computer with an internet connection, our default state was offline. Today that default state is online, because as soon as our phones are on, we are within reach of the machine. And this machine is like a mindless giant that you can control with your time and your attention. If you pay the wrong things, time and attention, the machine may well destroy you. 
But give the right things your two most precious resources, and it may lead you to the greatest of treasures. Our smartphones look rather death-like to me, like black slabs of aluminum and glass, dystopian black mirrors ready to relieve us of awkwardness and boredom, suffering, sadness, of loneliness. We feel so connected as persons, and we are so divided as human beings. And we spend time documenting our experiences, our meals, our meetings, our adventures. We create a highlight reel of the perfect moments in our lives, forgetting that every time we take out that phone, it makes us aware of the moment and how perfect it is. Instead of staying immersed in that moment, we go out of it and share the perfection of it, chasing approval from others that, yes, this really is a perfect moment. And when we look at everyone else's highlight reels, we compare them to our raw footage with all the mistakes, the embarrassing moments, the shame, the inadequacies, the doubt. But maybe posting more highlights will convince others, and by extensions ourselves, that we too are perfect. And so we keep our phones close at hand, ready to capture that next perfect moment we will experience. We still give the gift of time, but we aren't fully present because part of our attention is in our phones. I'm sorry if I have tarnished the shiny image of the internet, but hey, we're still using it. So high as the price may be, we still get our value's worth, even if we're losing time. I love science, but I believe that as we cut ties with religion in the wake of the scientific revolution, we lost touch with spirituality, the yin to the yang of science. I think the movie Contact captured this beautifully in the exchange between Jodie Foster playing the role of our inner scientist and Matthew McConaughey playing the role of our inner spiritual. The scene starts with Matthew McConaughey asking Jodie Foster, Did you love your father? What? Your dad, did you love him? Yes, very much. Prove it. I remember this dialogue by heart. It taught me that some things simply cannot be proven. They can only be experienced. But it took 20 years for that wisdom to sink in. Transhumanism allowed my old self, who only believed in what science could prove, to believe in eternal life. I was buying myself time, but most of the time, in hindsight, I didn't spend it well. Instead of starting to look for answers to the hard questions and putting time into things and people that really matter, I put time into escaping. I believed that I had all the time in the world, that I would never die because I placed my bet on two horses in the race. Transhumanism was one and this singularity the other. If either one, so would I. The singularity movement is a belief that humanity will build a computer so intelligent and conscious that its intelligence surpasses that of all living humans. Now, that goal could also be achieved through a third world war, because the few surviving humans would soon be so demented from nuclear fallout that any still-functioning Japanese high-tech toilet will be smarter than all of them together. It would be a fitting end to humanity, don't you think? But the singularity is a peaceful movement, and they want to achieve that by building an AI, or rather AGI, artificial general intelligence. 
And that AGI, in turn, will be able to build an AGI immensely smarter than itself, just like we built the first AGI, although we're dumber than it. And since it's so much more intelligent, it will build a successor in almost no time. And sooner rather than later, version 8 or so of this AGI will know everything, be aware of everything. It will solve all our problems and give us answers to all our questions, including those concerning aging and death. It will usher in a veritable utopia. It's the geek version of the concepts of God and heaven in one, really. We will build a machine that will give us all the answers and keep us from dying while providing anything we might desire. Now, mind you, this may already well have happened. Imagine a future where humans basically live forever and are able to get anything they can imagine at the press of a button. Literally anything. It's like playing an immersive video game, like in Ready Player One, except the universe in this game truly is immense and you can experience anything in it, just like you experience the real world. You choose the genre, the script, and your own role in the story. You can have a dinner party with Margaret Atwood, Keanu Reeves, and Tim Urban. You know, the guy who writes Wait, But Why? Or you could have a spit roast with Chris Pratt and Jake Gyllenhaal. I know I would, and I'm not talking about the kind that involves cooking. Or you can be any superhero you want to be. You can be the villain, although I wouldn't recommend that. You should be careful with being a villain, because villains are often angry, and we all know that anger leads to the dark side. But I believe Yoda was wrong about the irreversibility of the dark path. You can always choose to turn back. Anyway, imagine living virtually forever and having access to such experiences at the press of a button. It would be exciting for the first hundred or thousand years, but eventually you would get bored and you'd press the button thinking, surprise me. Then you'll realize you can experience the wildest things, but just like a video game on the easiest setting is boring to any gamer worth their salt, you will want a challenge. Nothing you can't handle, of course, just enough to keep you occupied. You'll start playing hardcore characters, those that only have one life, and when they die you have to start over. And then you'll have a brilliant idea. I mean, you can't get anything, right? What if you play that game with your own script and your own genre, but you add a twist? You'll play a hardcore character and forget that you're playing it. That way, losing your life becomes a real risk, adding the exhilaration of being near death. And right after that final moment, as you leave the game thinking you've died, you wake up and joke with your friends what an awesome session you just had. And then you'll dive in again to keep building this amazing multiplayer existence called the universe. And eventually, the game of universe that you and your friends are playing becomes so advanced that you create another game of universe inside it. But good as that button is, it cannot override life, the energy on which all these Russian doll-like universes operate on. And life has a memory. And so we dream of all the other universes we exist in, and our dreams manifest as art. 
how else do you think Christopher Nolan came up with Inception? When I meet him outside this universe, I must remember to high-five him. His human avatar makes movies that are really amazing. While I do believe that our universe is a construct made by us, I don't believe our way there will be through the kind of AGI we are dreaming of today. We have this view that we can create something that is immensely more intelligent than us because we have gotten intelligence wrong. It's our ego's fault. We got God wrong and then we corrupted God with power and money and believe ourselves to be the crown of creation. Intelligent beings created by a stupid environment. This is why randomness becomes important for natural science. Because it requires some real freakish random event for a stupid environment to create intelligent beings. And whether you think of that environment as the universe, nature or earth, if that stupid environment created us, we must be able to create something vastly more intelligent than us. Now, I believe we will be able to build an AGI one day, but it will not be more intelligent than us. I mean, sure, from our current mechanical view of the universe, it will seem as if it's super-duper, ultra-extra-mega-intelligent, much like the mechanical view dictates that we, humans, are vastly more intelligent than honeybees. But the answers to questions like what happens after death don't need a computer and intelligence. They just need a mind and some wisdom. And we are born wise. We have just forgotten it as we became adults. Let me give you an argument for why you already are wise. You know when you hear or read words of wisdom and you just go, of course. You don't learn anything new in those words because there's no new information in them. Take this one, for example. You cannot be brave if you've only had wonderful things happen to you. See? No new information, but a lot of wisdom. Wisdom is simply someone drawing new lines between dots you already know. It's a reminder that you know this. So you are already wise. You just need to be reminded of it. And the more reminded you get, the things that make you go, of course, make less and less sense to those that don't remember yet. Like this. Want is a growing plant whom the coat of have was never large enough to cover. My moment of realization about what I really believe happens after death, that was one of those of course moments. I had forgotten, and as long as I called myself an atheist, which I did for half my life, I could not be reminded of them. But it didn't matter. The beauty of the Church of the Singularity is that technology acts as the no-homo of spiritually curious atheists. That, and as long as the souls don't touch. The Church of Singularity offers a haven from having to really think about questions of death. And if you happen to do, you simply have a cookie, and when you're finished eating it, you'll feel right as rain. So I spend time and attention on understanding our world and our universe. One important part of our narrative about nature and the universe is what we call the laws of nature. 
And while natural sciences were not my favorite subject in school, as an adult I found myself reading about everything from biology to astrophysics. Werner Heisenberg was right when he said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. But before I met God, and boy is God a mad hatter, I had to face my fear of not existing. I knew that a good way of dealing with fears is exposure therapy. It worked well enough on my fear of spiders. Now I no longer feel the need to kill it, kill it with fire. But exposure therapy for not existing requires a leap of faith while you're tripping on LSD. Well, at least it did for me. They say that the moment of enlightenment has to be instantaneous. I'd say it's like finding a piece that connects two puzzles I've been building all my life, knowing them to be completely separate. Only that piece connects them and makes them whole in a way I didn't really know they could be before. Both are puzzles with a gazillion pieces, and the more you learn about each, the faster you can build it. Towards the end, the speed curve became exponential. I had one awakening after the other, each showing how the two puzzles connect. And then, when I finally had it, I simply stopped existing. The particular piece of wisdom that started all this was a synchronicity initiated by me admitting to myself that I did not understand. You see, the problem of knowing too much is that it's easy to believe yourself to know it all. And since you know so much, you end up being right more often than you are wrong and become a victim of confirmation bias. At least that's what happened to me. I knew so much that my friends had a nickname for that part of me. In Swedish, the short version of Michael is Mikke, and so my nickname became Mikipedia. This, of course, appealed to my ego. I mean, who doesn't want to know so much that your friends equate you with the most amazing source of knowledge we've collectively built so far? It was such a rare occurrence for me to admit to myself that I don't understand that I remember this particular time well. It was Thursday, July 7th, 2016. I was looking for answers and had discovered Syntheism, a movement for secular spirituality, if you will. I tried reading the book, and after finishing the first chapter, I turned off my Kindle and thought to myself, if someone asked what this first chapter is about, I could not explain it to them. What is metaphysics anyway? Perhaps this moment was so historical to me, not only because I admitted to myself that I didn't understand, but also because I admitted it to others. I talked to people about forming a book circle around it to help each other understand when someone told me to look up Alan Watts on YouTube. I had heard that name before, but I didn't really associate it with anything. I searched for Alan Watts and the first video that I watched became my of course moment. It reminded me of what I already knew and it was a perfect foreshadowing of the journey I was about to set out on. I'd like to share it with you. Perhaps it will remind you of something too. When you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a poor little me. 
And since you're all here engaged in this sort of inquiry and listening to this sort of lecture, I'll assume that you are all on the process of waking up. Or else you're teasing yourselves with some kind of flirtation of waking up, which you're not serious about. But I assume maybe you are not serious, but sincere, that you are ready to wake up. So then, when you're in the way of waking up and realizing who you really are, what you do is what the whole universe is doing at the place you call here and now. You are what the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is something that the whole ocean is doing. The real you is not a puppet which life pushes around. The real deep down you is the whole universe. So then, when you die, you're not going to have to put up with everlasting non-existence because that's not an experience. A lot of people are afraid that when they die, they're going to be locked up in a dark room forever and sort of undergo that. But one of the most interesting things in the world, this is a yoga, this is a way of realization. Try and imagine what it would be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Think about that. Children think about that. It's one of the great wonders of life. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? And if you think long enough about that, something will happen to you. You'll find out, among other things, that it will pose the next question to you. What was it like to wake up without never having gone to sleep? That was when you were born. You see, you can't have an experience of nothing. Nature abhors a vacuum. So after you're dead, the only thing that can happen is the same experience, or the same sort of experience as when you were born. In other words, we all know very well that after people die, other people are born. And they're all you, only you can only experience it one at a time. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. You know that very well. Only you don't have to remember the past in the same way you don't have to know how you work your thyroid gland or whatever else is in your organism. You don't have to know how to shine the sun. You just do it. Like you breathe. Doesn't it really astonish you that you are this fantastically complex thing and you're doing all of this and you never had any education in how to do it? This particular piece of wisdom created the connection in my head. And the moments of enlightenment made me feel that connection through and through, balls to bones. The fear of not existing was like a hydra. It was the fear of death, the fear of not being loved, the fear that this is all there is, the fear of not having control. Once I was ready to face it, I stopped existing for a while just to try it and realize it was the purest bliss I ever experienced. And I've done my fair share of MDMA to tell you that even your first trip in the most perfect setting imaginable is like holding a candle to the sun compared to the bliss of not existing. In that state, I understood the whole existence in that nothing needed understanding. In that state, 
I, as I've known myself for all my conscious life, does not exist. Logic does not exist. Nothing exists. A nothing built out of one paradox upon another, forming the most beautiful illusion in existence. The most beautiful dream, so vivid it may as well be called reality. I wish you such dreams, my friend. Until next time, sleep well until you wake up. Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups is written and produced by me, Michael Kazarnovich. The intro music was composed by Nazar Ryback. Transcript and extra material for each episode can be found at bedtimestoriesforgrownups.org. There, you'll also find my contact details and how you can support this podcast. You'll also find a form for requesting stories, in case there's something you'd like me to tell you a story about. If I have such a story, I'll tell it. And if I don't, well, I just might try to find one especially for you.